left you guys in good hands over gone. Thanks to Dale and Jill for standing in. And uh, can I just say I love dry heat and I don't like humidity. I'll just put it out there and say it's good to be back home. And we're going to jump right back into the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're talk about our trip. Oh, I have lots of good to say, but I have more good to say out of the Bible. <clears throat> if you want to know how good the trip was, ask Janet afterwards and she'll tell you. Um, so, let's just jump in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And before we can jump into verse 12, we've got to uh, kind of look back at uh, the, the last time we talked where the ask, seek, knock. And the reason we have to look back at that, you know, ask it and shall be given, seek and you shall knock. Um, seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be open to you. I, I knew it was there somewhere. Um, because verse, verse 12 begins with the word therefore. And um, it's an important word. In fact, it, it's just a funny story. When, right after Janet and I were married, we were looking for a church. We when we were engaged, we went to her father's church out in Ontario, and so now that we're married, we look for our own church, and we went to a church in Glendora, and I'll always remember the title of the sermon that Sunday morning. The title was, What the Therefore is Therefore, and um, I have no idea what the guy taught. I don't remember one thing about the sermon. I just remember the title, What the Therefore is Therefore, and so the therefore in verse 7 is, is crucial because when there is a therefore, it takes you back to what was just said. And so Jesus has just told us to ask and it shall be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And then he says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And we know this as the golden rule. Jesus didn't say this is the golden rule. Somebody somewhere, sometime decided that Matthew 7, 12 should be called the golden rule and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But the context of that saying that even those who don't go to church, if you ask them what the golden rule is, somewhere in their life, somebody's going to teach them, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The exhortation is really to pray in the context of asking God to intervene in our relationships. And um, I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but some relationships are hard. And <clears throat> whether it's parenting, whether it's marriage, whether it's outside the context of immediate family, some relationships take a lot of prayer. And it's a continuation of asking and seeking and knocking. And we've dealt with forgiveness and the necessity of that. If, if we don't forgive, then we have minimized the power of God's forgiveness in our life. And so Jesus is telling us that this type of prayer, the asking, the seeking, and knocking, is crucial to maintaining biblical community. In other words, part of our existence here is this community. We've been a part of each other's lives for so long. Part of it is based upon, is crucial upon us asking, seeking, knocking, for God to continue to knit our hearts together and to grow us and to love each other in the way that we would like to be loved in return. And so, um, and so we can't um, trust our natural instincts and abilities. We have to be careful not to neglect to pray what God is doing, to pray what he does in relationship. Now, what happens is there are a lot of people who take the golden rule and, and they actually say it in reverse. And so, or they, they take this verse. And um, it's, they take it to do not do anything to anyone else that you would not want to be done to yourself. And so they kind of turn it around and says this, look at me, I'm going to lie to you. If you steal from me, I'm going to steal from you. That's what the golden rule says. That is not what the golden rule says. The golden rule says just the opposite, that if you like being loved, then you need to love others. That if you enjoy being treated fairly, you need to be fair to other people. If you like receiving help, you need to help others. And so why, why do we need to behave like this? Why do we need to be proactive in love as opposed to reactive in retribution or retaliation? 
And, uh, you know, Jesus didn't say, um, do unto others what you would like them to do to you in order that they will do it to you. So in other words, he wasn't saying, be nice to them because you want them to be nice to you. The reality is sometimes you're nice to people and they're just not going to be nice to you. Some people, no matter how hard you try to be their friend, they're not going to be your friend. Rather, it's because it sums up the will of God revealed in our lives. God's will is that we, as the body of Christ, will love each other. And even more than that, he tells us to love our enemies. So if we can't love each other, if we can't continue to ask, to seek, and to knock, that God would have us love people by doing this, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, by doing this, we're fulfilling everything that we've learned up to now in the Sermon on the Mount, in this, what I call the Magna Carta or the Bill of Rights of the body of Christ. This is the, this is the handbook. If we were to choose any one portion of scripture and pull it out and say, this is the blueprint of how I'm going to live, it should be Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It should be the Sermon on the Mount. And so by doing this, we fulfilled the demands of the Sermon on the Mount. We fulfilled the law and the prophets by loving each other, and praying, asking, seeking, knocking for relationships to be strong, to be godly, to be loving, we fulfill everything God has called us to do. Now, Jesus, after he talks about being community, asking, seeking, knocking, praying that we would love one another in the way that we want to be loved, he then begins this process of talking about how humanity is really divided into two groups based upon two roads and based upon two gates and based upon two decisions. In fact, it's two gates, two ways or roads, two destinations, and two groups of people that he talks about in these next two verses. And a lot of people know these verses, but Jesus is really specific about the context of what these, the, this is about. He says, enter by the narrow gate. He says, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So he says, first of all, there's two gates. The gate that leads to the easy life, the gate that leads to the easy way is a big, wide, open gate, and it's just a simple matter of walking through the big gate to get on the big, wide road to live the easy life. There's a lot of light shining on the path. People are going 10, 20, 30, arms locked together, just having a good time walking as they're going. They're driving cars through this wide gate with luggage racks on top and U-Haul trailers behind that are overloaded and full. It's just a really easy way to go. And they don't need to leave anything behind. They can take their sins. They can take their self-righteousness. They can take their pride. And they can have easy access to this large, wide gate that leads to a wide road. Now, the gate that leads to the hard way on the other way is narrow. Um, I almost, it, it's one you have, you have to look to find it because it's easy to miss. Um, and, and to enter it, you have to leave everything behind. You have to leave behind your sin, your selfish ambition, your covetousness, and even if necessary, Jesus says, and we'll look at this verse in a little while, your family and your friends. It's, it's a gate that costs you everything to enter. Um, and and it, it's kind of like a turnstile. You know, have you ever got, when you walk into those, if, if you've ever been in like New York or one of those cities where it's really cold, when you walk into a hotel, it's a revolving door to go in because they want to keep the cold out. And you can only come in one at a time. And it's always funny to see two or three people trying to get in that little triangle, trying to come in at the same time. You have to come in one at a time. And that's kind of how this narrow gate and this narrow way is. You can't, you can't enter the kingdom as part of a group. You can enter the kingdom and become part of a group. But to enter in, it's a narrow way. It's a narrow path. You're, you're 
affiliation to a community or your citizenship in America will not get you through the gate. The gate admits one person at a time, and you can't enter the kingdom on the coattails of somebody else. In other words, your mom and dad's religion, your brothers and sisters' religion is not enough for you. Even their salvation is not enough for you. So there's, there's two gates, but there's also two roads. And the way or, or road that you walk on depends on which gate you choose. In other words, there's not a narrow gate that leads to a wide open road, and there's not a wide open gate that leads to a narrow road. The wide gate leads to a wide road. The narrow gate leads to a narrow road. And the white gate is made, and the road is made to accommodate anything you want whenever you want it. There's rest stops. There's holiday inns along the way. They have the light on waiting for you. There's gift shops, gas stations, nachos, popcorn, and Coke Zero. Everything you want on that wide road is, is there. Um, if you've seen Hunt for the Wilder People, you get the Coke Zero joke. Um, there's countless people along the way. They're happy. They're carefree. Life is uncomplicated and free. There's plenty of acceptance. There's diversity. There's opinions and laxity of morals. You can choose who you want to be, what you want to be, where you want to be. The road it's, it's a road of tolerance. It's a road of permissiveness. It has no curbs. It has no boundaries for thoughts or conduct. And there are a lot of people, according to Jesus, who choose the wide gate and the wide road. He says many <clears throat> enter into that gate. But when you look through the narrow gate, it's a narrow way. And there aren't very many accommodations for a lot of people as you walk through. He says it's a hard road. It's a difficult road. It's lonely. Uh, it may even seem barren. But then you see something along the way on the road that tells you it's the right path. And that's something, according to Jesus, that we see on this road is the cross. You see, it's only the cross that gives us access to the narrow gate to walk the narrow way. In fact, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 10. He who loves father or mother, or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's a narrow road. That's a narrow pathway. And the only way onto that pathway is through the cross. And it's not just through the cross. It also includes carrying our own cross. Not a cross of burden, but a cross that says we're willing to die to everything for the sake of this pathway, for the sake of our life and our walk with Christ. And so... The boundaries on the narrow road are clearly marked. It's not wide. There are curbs. There is direction. And as you walk on this, the narrowness is due to what something that, that I would call, that we would call divine revelation. The narrowness of it is restricted by the confines of the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God is very specific about how you and I are to live, live our lives and lead our lives. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So when you enter this narrow gate and you walk on this narrow road, there are restrictions that are given to us, and the restrictions are called the Word of God. And yet those restrictions really are defined as freedoms because they free us from the encumbrance of sin and the penalty and the judgment of evil and allows us to walk in the light, allows us to walk in life, and allows us to embrace everything Christ has set before us. So there's two gates, there's two roads, but Jesus says there's also two destinations. Listen, he says, now, now here's the interesting thing. The gate that is wide is not marked. This is the road to hell. Welcome. The gate that is wide says heaven over the top. 
The gate that is narrow says heaven over the top. And it's because Satan is the master deceiver and he constructs his gate and his path to look like what people want heaven to be, what they want life to be. And when people think of heaven, they think of the easy life. They think of, you know, most people believe this. Most people believe that salvation is just to get us through here on earth and transformation is going to take place on the other side. So when we get to heaven, that's when the real change of character and personality takes place. That's really not what the Bible says. But that's what Satan wants us to believe. He wants us to live in a way that, that says, I want to get to heaven in the easiest way possible. That's why there are so many people who think that once they've asked Christ, I want to live my life, I want to okay, I've got my ticket to heaven. Now I'll just live my life the way I want to live my life. And when I get to heaven, I'll be transformed. That's what the enemy wants us to believe. That's called the wide gate. That's called the wide way. And so, and Solomon, you know, who did not take his own advice, but Solomon says this, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. The wide way seems right. The wide way seems easy to the logic and the rationale and the thinking of man. But it is the wide gate, according to Jesus, that leads to death, that leads to destruction. Um, and the size of the crowds or the people traveling the road are vastly different. See, God's way is not discovered by a majority of opinion. Um, you know, by living in a culture of acceptance, of embracing what culture says is truth, causes so many to walk the wrong way. And can all that many people be wrong? The answer is yes. Not by my estimation, not by my opinion. Not because I sit here and say so, but because the confines of, of moral truth and reality defined by Scripture is a very narrow path that we must walk. So narrow and so confining that Jesus says, we, if we are not to count everything as lost for the sake of the cross, then we need to go back and re-examine what road we're really on because he said even mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter may be a cost to walk this road, to follow this path. The narrow way cannot pursued, be pursued as long as our actions are motivated by desires to make other people happy and to please other people, by the desire to want to be liked and to want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be accepted. And, and everybody comes to a time in their life when they have an expectation of their walk with Jesus that they quite possibly will get offended. When that narrow road starts to cost you more than you thought you were willing to pay, it's easy to get offended. There's not any offense on the wide road. You know, we have two, two guys who followed Jesus who got offended. One was his cousin, John the Baptist, and the other was Judas. And they both got offended for the same reason. They both had an expectation that Jesus was going to be something different than what he was. They, they believed he was going to be king. They believed he was Messiah. But they believed it in a political, worldly sense. They didn't believe it in a kingdom sense. But here's the difference between these two men. John, in his offense, went to Jesus. Judas, in his offense, went to the established church. John sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you the Messiah or should we look for somebody else? Jesus says, go back and tell John what you see. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are being raised, the gospel is being preached to the poor. And then he says, and, and tell John this, blessed is he who is not offended by me. So John 
I, I believe John knew his life was near an end. I, I believe he knew he was about to die. Whether he knew it was going to be beheading or not, I don't know. But he has been the one who had been, as, as Scripture says, the forerunner, the one preparing the way for Jesus to come. And in that preparation, somewhere along the way, even though John declared, behold, the Lamb of God is going to throw Caesar off his... He was saying that with his mouth, but he was saying, behold, the king is going to throw Caesar off his throne. And Judas did the same thing, but Judas went to the church, really. He went to religious leaders, and they gave him counsel and said, you know what? He's a heretic. We've got to shut him up. And, and if you think about it for a moment... Judas didn't need to kiss Jesus for them to arrest him. That wasn't necessary. The Sanhedrin were already accusing him of blasphemy. What they needed was a false witness. They needed Judas, and, and Judas never testified at Jesus' trial. All he had to do was be a puppet for the Sanhedrin to say Jesus is blasphemous, that Jesus has said he is God. Here's your 20 pieces of silver and the rest is history. So on these ways, on this narrow way and this wide way, there, there are very few who, in fact none, who will ever be offended on the wide way. They love the wide way because they can live how they want to live, they can do what they want to do, and they believe they're going to live happily ever after. But the narrow way, Jesus says there's going to come times, he says the narrow way is hard. And there's going to come times where quite possibly we will be offended. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the, that the narrow way is so narrow that quite possibly even the elect will be deceived. In other words, they'll be deceived to believe that they can move over to the wide way that has less challenge, that has no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, and they can still make it into heaven. They can still have a relationship with God. And so the size of the crowd... The wide road is going to be overpopulated. It's going to be like rush hour traffic on the 210. The road to, to heaven, the narrow way, is going to be the most difficult hiking path you can think of. And when you take off, there's not a crowd of people waiting to go with you because it's hard and they don't want to do it. And so Jesus says in this as, as we come to these gates, as we come to these ways, there are going to be people who are going to convince us, try to convince us, that the wide gate and the wide way is the right way and the best way. And so he says this, when you get to these gates, when you get to these narrow ways, when you're by yourself or with a horde of people, he says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, Jesus is using a picture here that everybody who is listening to him teaching understood. Um, and it would mean more to them than it would to us. See, in, in Palestine there was a, a thorn bush that was called a buckhorn. And a buckhorn had little black berries, which unless you got close, they looked like grapes. And so a thorn bush or a buckhorn could actually look like a grapevine and look like it was producing grapes when really it was producing nothing that was edible or was pleasing to man. And, and also... Um, Thistles had a flower that was comparable to the flower you'd see thinking. And so you'd see these thistles growing when they were blooming and thinking they were going to be figs from a distance. You'd mistake them for a fig. And the point is this. There's a superficial 
relevance between true and false. False has a tendency to look and to sound like true. Thorn bushes or buckhorns look like grapes. Thistles look like figs. And unless you closely inspect them, unless you get up and you look at them, you are going to be deceived because a buckhorn is never going to give you grapes and a thistle bush is never going to give you figs. And given enough time, people will be true to their inner nature and that rotten tree is eventually going to produce rotten fruit. And so people who choose to pursue the faults are eventually going to produce fruit that is false. So the threat of false prophets was nothing new to Israel. It, it had been in their history over and over and over again. If you know the story of Jeremiah, I mean, Jeremiah just, the guy was called to be a prophet, and he just had to speak what came to his mind and heart, even though he knew what, it, what he was going to speak was not going to be liked by the king and by the priest of Israel, whose father, Jeremiah's father, being one of those priests. They were not going to like what he said. And what the kings did was they went and they found other prophets who would prophesy what they wanted to hear. So every time Jeremiah would prophesy something about God's judgment coming because they had turned their heart against God, the king would find another prophet to prophesy just the opposite. Jeremiah would prophesy the narrow gate and the narrow way. The false prophet would prophesy the wide gate and the wide way, and the king would say, this is the true prophet. Jeremiah is the false prophet. And because of that, Jeremiah ended up in the dungeon a lot. It was in the very pit of the dungeon when the Babylonian army showed up and overtook Jerusalem. So here's what Jeremiah 5.31 says, 5.30 and 31. God said, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. In other words, the people love the false prophecies, and they love the false teachings from the priests. They embrace that. Again, in Jeremiah 14, 14, now Jeremiah is speaking and saying, the Lord spoke to me. He says again, then the Lord said to me, <clears throat> The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and deception of their own minds. And every time these guys prophesied, it was always in response to what Jeremiah had just prophesied. So every time Jeremiah warned them, in fact, you know, Jeremiah kept saying, look it, <clears throat> Babylon is going to come and destroy and capture Israel. And the king kept saying, we don't have to worry about it. The Egyptians are on our side. The Egyptians have got Nebuchadnezzar taken care of. Well, what the king didn't know is Nebuchadnezzar had already defeated the Egyptians and he was on the way. And so eventually God said, okay, I used to say if you repent, I would spare you, but now if you repent, I won't let them kill you, but you're going to go into captivity. But you have to repent first. And so every time Jeremiah would prophesy more and more destruction and punishment coming, the king would find a prophet and the priest who would prophesy just the opposite to appease him and to appease the people. In fact, if you know the story, when the king and his sons tried to escape and they had captured a dungeon, and they said, are you Jeremiah? Well, <clears throat> When they find Jeremiah, he's in the pit of the dungeon, and they said, are you Jeremiah, the one who prophesied that we were going to come and, and capture Israel? And he said, yes, I am. They said, you're free to go. But when they got the king and his sons, they asked the king, has, has the Lord said anything to you? He says, yes, the Lord told me that uh, you won't kill me. And so they said, okay, we'll take care of that. So what they did was they killed his sons in front of him and gouged his eyes out, and he lived. And so, because they refused, because they believed the false prophets, because they chose the wide gate and the wide way, Israel went into captivity for 400 years. And so, although that was spoken in the sixth, what's that? At that time, it was only 
That's right, 70 years. It was 400 years in Egypt, 70 years for Daniel in Babylon. You're right. What would I do without Dale? <laughs> That's not heresy. That's just a mistake. So, Jesus warns us to beware of false prophets or teachers who claim to speak for God, directing us to the broad way. And unfortunately, there's a lot of pulpits today that are saying the broad way is okay because it's culturally correct and it allows us to mingle with those who would never come to church unless we were culturally relevant. And so... Jesus compared these false teachers to wolves um, who pretend to be sheep and talks about how dangerous that is. They are dangerous to people's spiritual life. They convince people that the narrow way is much broader than Jesus taught. They present the broad and easy way as the narrow way. That's the deception, is that when you embrace the, the broad way to convince you that it actually is the narrow way. And the only way they can do that is by contradicting Scripture, by contradicting the words of Jesus. Because even in this verse, he says, look it, the narrow way is not easy. It's hard. But they will convince you that because God is love, and because God loves everybody, because God really does love us, he would never make us take something that was hard that would appear to be unloving. And so really the broad way is the narrow way he was talking about. And there are hundreds and thousands and millions of people who accept that. And we have defined it today in our culture as, it used to be tolerance, but tolerance was eventually changed because those who wanted tolerance understood to be tolerated is not to be accepted. To be tolerated means that we're just going to put up with what you're doing and we're not going to judge you for it. They no longer wanted to be tolerated. They wanted to be accepted and they wanted acceptance to be defined as love. And so the Christian defines this virtue of tolerance and acceptance. The Bible for the narrow way says this, the descriptions of tolerance and acceptance is to love your enemy. I have a hard enough time loving people that are loving, let alone loving my enemies. But that's what acceptance and tolerance is for us. To love those who hate us. Jesus, remember the Sermon on the Mount, says, Blessed are you when men persecute you, revile you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, for so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. That's the narrow way. It's intolerance. Worldly culture defines this virtue of acceptance or tolerance, whichever you want to call it, as those who refuse to condemn lifestyles or behavior as evil. Except a behavior that condemns them as evil. So, let's say we are in a culture now where we say murder is justified in certain situations. Okay, so if we come out and say, no, murder is never justified, then the murderer is not evil because what they do is justified. We are evil because we condemn them for murdering. The, the simple example would be abortion. You know, abortion is not evil. It's justified because it helps the health of a woman. And therefore, if you're not for the health of a woman, you are evil. Murdering babies is not evil, but being against women's health is evil. So they take and they switch it. That is, that is what happens when we begin to believe that the wide way is actually the narrow way. And so 
Jesus focuses on three things. He talks about three specific things when he talks about false prophets. He talks about deception, he talks about danger, and he talks about disclosure. And when he talks about deceptions, their deceptions, Jesus, here's what he has in mind when he describes them as coming in sheep's clothing. That it's not, look, if somebody came in here in a bald-faced, heretical lie, if somebody, I don't know if you saw on news, news this week, it was just a little small thing, but there is this guy walking through, I can't remember which country it was in Africa, dressed like Jesus, one of the paintings of Jesus, in a white robe with a blue sash with long hair and beard. He convinced these churches that he was Jesus, that he had come and that he had decided that God had chosen them to come to first, and he began to deceive them, began to get money. He was eventually arrested. So if a guy walked down the center aisle here in a white robe and a blue sash with long hair and beard and say, here I am, I'm Jesus, we'd pretty much know. Knucklehead, you know. So that is not the type of deception Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a wolf walking down the aisle growling and snarling like a wolf saying, I want to eat you. He's talking about a wolf who comes down the aisle who's worked really hard to put on a sheep's clothing and saying, bah, as he walks down the aisle until he gets in your face and then he'll devour you. So he's not talking about blatant heresy. He's talk, not talking about blatant false teaching. He's talking about stuff that has just enough truth in it to deceive you, to deceive us. And so... Not many Christians would be duped by a vocal. I mean, not many Christians would be duped by a guy in a white robe and a blue sash who says, here I am, I'm Jesus. And, and the church as a whole usually responds really well to these type of heretical or stupid attacks, I would call them. So Jesus is talking about the types of attacks that are secretly sneaky. They're doctrinally and ethically like a Trojan horse, that hidden inside is deception. And if we accept part of it, we accept all of it. The most dangerous individuals come clothed in tolerance, in, in, in acceptance, and they use theological vocabulary. They will come and they will speak like Jesus, but they will have no scripture to support what they're saying and what they're doing. They word it. And they may take a verse out of context. They may take a verse and reword it in order to justify what they're doing, which just this week, um, and this is not to be a political statement, so don't see it that, but one of the, in the Democratic debates, if you listen to them, one of the candidates who is openly gay used scripture to say that Christians were racist because they're not helping everybody who is poor and who's coming into our country in need. So he used a verse, he took it out of context to, to say the people who follow after Jesus are really racist because they're not living out what the Bible says. Well, and I'm not here to talk about it, I'm just saying that was a misapplication of scripture and that's what the enemy does. He is going to use scripture is going to misinterpret scripture. He's going to misapply scripture. Remember when Jesus came out of the wilderness, he began to answer Satan with scripture. Satan says, I know the Bible too. He said, for it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. But what he didn't do was quote the rest of the verse. But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he just said, man should not live by bread alone, so command these stones to be turned to bread. And Jesus' response was, get thee behind me, Satan. See, we need to know, just because somebody quotes part of a verse, to make an application sound true, if they don't have the full context of Scripture, it's a lie. And that's what the, the false prophet, that's what their deception is. The false prophets come in sheep clothing. They rarely present themselves as anything but a Christian. They rarely present themselves as anything but someone who is chosen and sent by God. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 24 
that quite possibly even the elect will be deceived before the Son of Man comes. So if you don't know your Bible, if you don't know what Jesus did say, if you don't know what Jesus did mean, if you don't know to follow Jesus does require you picking up a cross, if you don't know that following Jesus means that people will persecute you, they'll lie about you, they'll joke about you, they'll sneer at you, they'll call you evil, they may even kill you. If you don't understand, that's what the Bible says. When those things start to happen, somehow you're going to think God has abandoned you. And you chose the wrong road. And so you're going to switch over to the wide road because it's much easier to take the wide path than the wide gate. So there's deception. There's also danger that comes from these false prophets and false teachers. Um, Jesus says they may come in sheep clothing, but inwardly, in their heart, they're ravenous wolves. You know, um, Jesus got in this argument with the, the Pharisees about washing hands. And he got mad because the disciples had picked up some food to eat and they hadn't washed their hands first. And, you know, Jesus says, look it, whatever you put in your, in your mouth is going to come out of your body. But he said, whatever's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth. And so as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. He says, you should be more concerned about what comes out of the heart of man than what comes out of the stomach of man and not be so concerned about washing your hands. And so there, there was an especially relevant metaphor in the first century um, because of Jesus is speaking to shepherds. So they understand sheep. They understand wolves. Here's, sheep are, are dumb, if you didn't know that. And just to exhort you, Jesus calls us his sheep. So you can wear that however you want. But here's what sheep do. When the wolf shows up, sheep don't scatter and run away. And they keep trying to get in the middle, and they get in this, in this herd, and they keep trying to get in the middle to get away from the wolf. So the wolf never goes to the middle. The wolf just stands on the outside and picks up the ones on the outside because they're not smart enough to run away. And that's why Jesus is saying you got to be careful of these wolves who come as sheep because they're just coming to pick you off. You're going to be easy prey if you're going to stick around when the wolf is teaching. This is what Ezekiel 22, 27 through 28 says. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, to shed blood, to destroy people, to get dishonest gain. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. That's what the prophet Ezekiel says. In fact, <clears throat> I had these verses up today. People often quote Ezekiel 22 when God says, I looked for a man of among them to hedge the gap, to stand in the gap. But it was in context to someone who would stand up against false prophets. Someone, the Lord says, I was looking for one man, one righteous man to stand up and say, shut up, these guys are lying. To stand in the gap on my behalf, on behalf of a people. But he found no one. No one who was willing to say, you're on the right, on the wide way, and they've told you it's the narrow way. The narrow way is over here, and you cannot believe what they're teaching you. Jesus said it this way, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, <clears throat> sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. So Jesus says there's a danger in following a false teacher because the reality is the false teacher only cares about themselves, only cares about what gain they get from being able to deceive the sheep. They never care about the sheep. They only care about themselves, just as a wolf would. Finally, he talks about their disclosure. He says we're to test, to try, to examine. Um, and, and the best way I could find to say that is that there's really a, a threefold test when a teacher comes, and John covers it in 1 John chapter 2. And I just want to look at these real quickly. There's a moral test, there's a social test, and there's a doctrinal test that we can give to any teaching. 
And, and if that teaching stands up to the moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal <coughs> test, we can know it's from God. And this is what John says. This is the moral test. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So the moral test for a teacher is, are they teaching the commands of God, and are they keeping God's commandments? If they're not, according to the Bible, they're a liar. Secondly is the social test. Later down in verse 9, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness unto now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In fact, Jesus took it a step farther. It wasn't only saying you're in the light and loving your brother. Jesus said if you're in the light, you need to love your enemy as well. So there is a social test. How do they love those in their community? And how do they love those outside the community? If the one who is teaching does not love the people and does not love those outside, they have failed the social test. And then finally, there's a doctrinal test. Jesus, John says this, little children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now, John thought it was the last hour 2,000 years ago, just saying. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest, that none of them are with us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. He who is a liar, but he who denies that Christ, that Jesus is, who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son also has the Father. So he's saying, look at the doctrinal test is, are they preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Are they telling you that the way to follow Christ is the narrow gate and the narrow road? And to walk on that road, you've got to pick up a cross and follow Him. You've got to count all things as lost for the sake of the cross. So if you are sitting under a teacher who doesn't pass the moral test of keeping God's commandments, doesn't the doctrinal social test by loving their enemies and loving their brothers, and doesn't pass the doctrinal test of teaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and only through Christ alone does salvation come, then they are a false teacher. They are a wolf in sheep's clothing. You can't, it can't be two out of three. They can't pass the moral test and the social test and fail the doctrinal test. They can't pass the doctrinal test and fail the, the, the moral test because you cannot pass the doctrinal test and not pass the moral test. So you have to be able to, a teacher has to pass all three. That's why Jesus says, examine their fruits. Look at who they are, how they live. Do they live what they say and do they say what my word says? So, the fruit which Jesus has in mind was their doctrine and their deeds. So, so when Jesus says, you know, you will know them, examine their fruits, here's what he's saying. First of all, understand their doctrine. Understand, are they teaching you to walk through the narrow gate and walk the narrow road? And G there's a good reason Jesus warns about false gospels. Because there's a misleading gate, there's a misleading way, there are misleading teachers and prophets who point to that gate and promote that way as the right way. You, you all remember, we've talked about this before, in, in uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul missed being in Jerusalem for Passover, so he wanted to be back for Pentecost. And so he leaves Rome and he's going down to Jerusalem. But he knows if he goes through Ephesus, he's got a problem because he lived there for three years and everybody's going, oh, Paul, 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 stay with us. We love you, we love you, we love you. So he goes down to Miletus. But he feels like he needs to exhort 
the leaders of the church. So he calls them down to him. He meets with them. He prays with them. They lay on each other and they cry and say goodbye because he says, I'm never going to see you again. But he tells them this. I want you to beware because false teachers are going to come in and they're going to try and mislead you and try and undo everything I've taught you. Then he goes on. A few years later, the same John who wrote 1 John has this revelation that we call the book of Revelation. In the first verse of chapter 2, it's written to the church at Ephesus. And, and Jesus says, I have this. I, I love that you hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate too. So they took Paul's word, and they were really adamant and vehement. We're not going to let any false teachings come into our midst. But then Jesus says, but I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. So even though they were passing the doctrinal test, they were, they were failing these enemies, enemies, enemies and, and they were becoming a religious spirit was allowed. So we need to, doctrine is good, you know, and, and these, these false teachers are like tour guides who stand at the broad gate and they try to get you in. There's nothing in their preaching that fosters a spirit of poverty. And I'm not saying, I mean, a poverty of spirit, not a spirit of poverty, a poverty of spirit. And nothing which searches the conscious to make one cry out to God for mercy. In other words, they're not talking about sin. Their, their preaching is not searing your heart and searing your soul because you recognize you're living a life that contradicts God's life for you and you need to repent and come to, come to Christ. Nothing that, that excoriates all forms of religious hypocrisy it's, it's that they don't encourage it, they ignore it. Again, if they encouraged it, they would be discovered. They just ignore it and they focus on what they want to focus on. And there's nothing that, that promotes righteous conduct and lets them know that, look it, as the day of the return of the Lord draws near, persecution is going to be inevitable. If you stand for righteousness, the world is going to vehemently hate you. Then he talks about their deeds, and it's really mimicking the morality of the Bible is going to eventually catch up with them. In other words, you can't pretend forever. You're going to get caught. Things are going to show up. Things are going to begin to be called out. Most false teachers are not aware there are faults um, because they don't study the Bible enough to understand. It's scripture that convinced. So a lot of false teachers never even look at the Bible. Therefore, their conscience is never seared because they never read the truth to where they have to go, uh-oh, that's not what I've been teaching. They, so what they do is they just don't open the book. Or if they do, they look for one or two verses that they can put in a context to support what they want to teach, and they'll spend their entire ministry focusing on two, three, four, five verses to bring it about. Scripture requires God people to take a stand against compromise of trends or doctrines. And, you know, even though some teachers are false, you can't dismiss all of their followers as false. You can't dismiss the whole church as false. That's why we have to be alert. We have to be aware. There are times to bring judgment to ministries, and Jesus gave us a way to do that. And, and Matthew 18 is a great way to confront someone who is in sin. And just let me say this. If someone is teaching something that is unbiblical, they are in sin. And we have a biblical right to confront them, and Jesus gave us a biblical process too. So if someone teaches something that's wrong, and you know it, you take your Bible and you go to them and say, Hey, friend, you, you kind of took the verse out of context. This is what it really says. I think you should correct that. And if they say, You're an idiot. Get out of my face. That isn't what it says. Then it says, Okay. Go get a couple of friends who understand the Bible, too, and go and talk to them. And if they don't believe it then, well, then come before the church and say, Church, this is what the Bible says. This is what they taught. And if they still refuse, then he says, Treat them like a tax gatherer. In other words, break fellowship with them, kick them out. Don't allow the wolves to come into the sheep flock. And so it was doctrine and deeds that Jesus said we're to watch. And so... And, and we need to do this without criticizing specific ministries by name unless we go through the biblical process. Um, you know, this is what Paul says. But what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who...
who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is of no great thing if, he if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So Jesus, I mean, Paul says, look it, I'm going to continue to teach the right way and show you the right way because these guys who come in and want to be like us and want to, you, you've got to know what the truth is before you can identify the faults. And so we must do this in the right way with the right spirit. Loving the church is not the same as agreeing with the practice of every local church body. There are going to be things, listen, there are going to be things doctrinally that you disagree upon, that you both are going to feel you've proven what you believe. But let me tell you this. If any proof text is used to prove anything but salvation, look, at some believe God chose us for salvation, other believes we choose God and we receive salvation. The bottom line is they both believe there's only one way to eternal life, and that's salvation. So even though there's two doctrinal positions, the conclusion is the same. Salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. And so let's don't spend all our time arguing about how salvation comes about. Let's just preach Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. And we'll let God tell us in the end if he chose them or they chose him. That's fine with me. But those are not the things I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person who says, well, salvation comes first of all by you pledging your allegiance to me, giving your money to me, doing, reading the scriptures that I tell you to read, living how I tell you to live, and then salvation will come. Salvation comes one way and one way alone. It's through the cross, through Jesus. So what's the conclusion on how to avoid deception? Number one, regular prayerful Bible reading. Guys, you gotta know what the Bible says. And hopefully, I am not your only source. I'm not your only source to understand scripture. You know, none of the apostles had college educations, but they knew the word of God. The Holy Spirit made the word of God alive to them, and they preached. When Peter stood there on the day of Pentecost, he knew what the book of Joel said. He quoted the book of Joel. He understood that the prophecy of the book of Joel had been fulfilled. This uneducated, overly obnoxious fisherman. And 2,000 people accepted Christ that day. So it's not about theological training. It's about reading the Word of God, listening to the Holy Spirit, and understanding this. The best definer of Scripture is Scripture. So if you want to know what a verse means, you can find what it means through other scripture. And, and they will never, ever, 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 ever contradict. Period. Setting our hearts to obey what we know is true. So it's one thing to say, I know what the scripture says. It's another thing to do what the scripture says. Thirdly, staying in close relationship with others. People in this room that you're sitting next to or in front of behind, they're part of the life that God has given you. We are the body of Christ, and we are here to hold each other accountable, to encourage, to exhort, and to walk with each other. Regular involvement with a community that has leaders who uphold biblical doctrine and practices. Look, I want my life, I want the life of every leader, plus every person in this room, to be an open book. We should all have the right to say, uh-uh, what are you doing? Stop that. Don't do that. That's part of avoiding deception. And finally, maintaining a teachable spirit that receives instruction and correction from others. I had to say, and correction. It's easy to receive instruction. It's hard to receive correction. But just remember, if they need a spanking. So we all deserve to be spanked by Jesus. If we're going to live according to his word. All right. So, there's two gates. 
but there's only one you can walk through. There's two roads, but there's only one you should follow. And uh, there are two destinations, but we want the one that goes up. And there are many of false teachers, but there's only one truth. And just remember this all the time. Truth is not a philosophy. Truth is not a definition. Truth is a person. That person is Jesus Christ, period. Jesus is the truth. We shouldn't be arguing positions. We should simply be saying, this is truth. What he says is true, and that's it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for your teachings, that they are life to us, that they are a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. We ask God that we be ever mindful in every decision we make. We can simply ask the question, which gate is this? Which road is this? What's the destination of this path I'm on? And who does it glorify? So God, may we be found to be faithful as we love one another as you have loved us, as we love one another in the way we long to be loved, to fulfill the law and the prophets. Thank you, God, for your truth that sets us free. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.